Okay, okay, Before then. we like, go oh, to yeah. that, like, I, what kind of preparation have you guys done? I've got, I'm just skimming through some notes that I made for Donna things. Yeah, I made, made some oh, yeah, very vague notes. Remember I said that. Yeah, nothing right. intense. I literally haven't watched a single film or even looked at his Wikipedia article. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> That's why we needed it's a special a fitting guest. tribute. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's worth. <laughs> really wanted. In honor of the man. When he was on his deathbed, he leaned over to his wife, grabbed her hand, and she said, oh, What is it, Dickie? And he said, Look, when I go, I just want three men who are quite good friends to have a lot of technical issues as they try to start an online three way conversation. And then when that conversation starts, I want two of them to have done some prep, but one of them to have like not even bothered. She says, I, I, that probably happened, to be honest, Rich. It's about to, really, somewhere. <laughs> and that place is here. Kino Kingdom. A smile <laughs> Episode 43 of Kino Kingdom. And today we are joined by a special guest, Laszlo Buckets. Uh, obviously, obviously a pseudonym. Um, and yeah, there's a lot going on today. We're going we're gonna to give a very, a very, uh, a, a, a just touching uh, epilogue to Richard Donner's life by briefly talking about Lethal Weapon and then skipping all the sequels. So, <laughs> I, but, you could never skip the sequels to Lethal Weapon. They're all good, even the fourth one. Genuinely yeah, which, believe that. And I, 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 I do believe. I do think that if I were, I would say that there is a decline in quality, like a very slight decline in quality. But I, I, I think that the vet, the end. The ending sequence of the fourth one, I'm I'm always happy to see it. Yes, I think like, I, 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 yeah, I, I feel like I I've been with all these characters on this journey, and I'm happy with how it went. And I feel that that it's earned as well. I mean, yeah. in a kind of convoluted way, but yes. I'm glad we didn't do a fifth one. Yes, as threatened to do many times. Oh, they'll reboot it. They did a TV series, didn't they? And then yeah. the main guy got booted off. Well, yeah. the main guy played played who? Uh, well, Mel Gibson's character, I think. What are they? Re- what, what are they replacing with? Just a sheet that? <laughs> it was just a gun. It was really dangerous gun. A, a gun on a string that's um, really hot. So every time any like it's the guy who plays um, Murtaugh's character is like, come on, Riggs, and it's a gun on a string with him, and and his trick is to go up to the bad guys, and the bad guys say, oh, a gun, I'll grab that, but of course it's hot, so it burns their hands, and as it burns their hands, that's when Murtaugh strikes when they're distracted. Yeah, yeah. They, they touch good. the gun and they're so alarmed they end up kicking themselves in the face <laughs> and die. Lethal <laughs> weapon. Uh, um, <laughs> the amount of times people have kicked themselves in the face to death in America alone is alarming. I think it was. You'd think it'd be rarer. It's um, in double figures. So this is the Donner Party then. Yes, yes. So, so yeah, this is Kino Kingdom episode forty-three. We are joined by our, our special guest Laszlo Buckets. Um, before we kick off, um, there's, well, before we go into the actual um, Donner Party, uh, I've got a couple of things. As you know. We've been doing pretty well with sponsorship recently to the point um, on the Arkansas after this as well, to the point that I 
sort of reached out a little bit actually because I was feeling a bit feisty and I thought well I don't really need money at the moment you know the, the podcast is coasting along so I thought I would broaden our horizons and try to get some interviews on the go and I I didn't realize because I obviously don't understand the ins and outs of Hollywood but it turns out that a lot of actors that you wouldn't think share the same agent and I contacted this agent and I said oh you know is there any chance that you know, I could speak to some of your the actors you've got um, under your umbrella uh, for an interview on a podcast I do called Kino Kingdom. And he said, oh, I don't know. Have you got any feet? And I thought that was a bit of a strange question. Mm. I said, yeah, I said, yeah, I've got two feet. Uh, and he said, oh, if you, I tell you what, send me a picture of your feet and I'll judge them. And depending on how much I like them, that's how long I'll give you with um, actors of your choice. Okay. So I sent him a picture of my feet and I made them look really coquettish as well and sexy. Uh, and Painted he said, nails or? no, I just I just tensed and spread them like a magazine rack. Uh, I wanted like t- tension in the image, you know, um, so like, a, and, like a like a hand with really small fingers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could you could, you know, at the right angles. <laughs> say that, <yes>. <laughs> <laughs> But the, but you could see the bones and the tendons, you know, they were really tense. I actually almost, I could see, you know, you could see dots. I was tense on my feet so hard. I, I sort of, uh, so I really, really tried. But he said, okay, you get a minute with my actors. So I said, well, a minute, a minute with all these actors. What can you do in a minute? Um, you can't interview them and cover their career. So what I've done is I just said, contact these actors. And I just said, look, I've got a minute with you. Uh, just word association and the first person I spoke to was Michael York um, of Logan's Run and Austin Powers fame so this is a minute with Michael York word association Michael Jeter baseball sport bra breast tit Feel, have, need, yearn, police, chase, catch, prison, cellmate, lack of trousers, Lonely, kneel, weep, sleep, shadows, Cliff Richard. And I think that that, I think this, it cuts those ideas of like a minute with, it cuts to the core of the interview process because you're following a, like a lateral flow through their minds of just whatever pops that it's a raw interviewing style mm. that I, I think i'm gonna carry on with i'm surprised it ended on cliff richard i'm not gonna lie to you i didn't see that coming yeah, but you don't know where it's gonna end up like it's like life isn't it but you know it's just cut out the small talk really let's get straight to the heart of the matter prison um, <laughs> cellmates shadows cliff richard I like how we, I, I like how when uh, as well you say you know you've got a uh, word association off you go he started off with his own name 
So it's like, well, M- Michael, obviously, like that's the center of his universe. But then this, it wasn't York, was it? The second mm. one was was Jeter, which is an unusual leap of Michael. Yeah, you wouldn't have thought Michael York would have any specific interest in Michael Cheetah, but there you go. Apart from as an actor, maybe it's just a, a, as a cohort, you know, as a, as a yeah. colleague. Yeah. So the Arkansas last time was yeah. Vera Farmiga to Josh Hartnett. And I know that everyone has struggled with this. And yet I got a few responses um, and they were, they were a lot more impressive than I anticipated. So the first one I've got is a four-stepper. And that is Josh Hartnett is in faculty with Elijah Wood, who's in Lord of the Rings with Ian Holm, who is in Day After Tomorrow with Jake Gyllenhaal, who's in Source Code with Vera Farmiga. So that's a four stepper. I got a three stepper, which is uh, I was actually sent in by video by someone called sorry, audio sent in by someone called Utah Smith. And this is the three stepper. Vera Farmiga was in uh, The Departed with Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson was in um, The Bucket List with Morgan Freeman, and Morgan Freeman was in Lucky Number 11 with uh, Josh Hartnett. Boom. Uh, so that's a three-stepper. And Laszlo, I believe you've got a three-stepper as well. I do. That I can't remember. <laughs> um, that got, the last guy threw me by going in reverse. Oh, really? um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's how you failed your driving test as well, isn't it? <laughs> More than once. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was. I had Josh Hartner was in uh, Lucky Number Eleven with Bruce Willis, who was in uh, Ocean's Twelve with Matt Damon, who was in The Departed with Vera Farmiga. Nice. And Rupert, mm. it, is it is it is it two one or three one to to you against the audience at the moment? Um, I think it was two one. So uh, can, can you make it three one though? Well, I I don't think I can beat the audience, but I can match them. So Vera was in the commuter with Liam Neeson, who's in the Phantom Menace with Ewan McGregor, who's in Black Hawk Down with Josh. Oh, now, nice. So th- I wasn't 100% ways. sure whether Josh Hartnett was in Black Hawk Down, but then I remember him on the poster, so he must be in it. I had the same thing with uh, um, Sin City. I was thinking, yeah. was he in that? And, and then I saw a picture of him. I was like, oh, yes, he was. But I, I cannot remember him being in it. Like, Did he, didn't, didn't, he re- didn't he replace a character? Like, wasn't it the same character played by two different actors in the two films? Quite possibly. Yeah. Like, I'm sure it's like Benicio del Toro or someone. But, but yeah, I, I I can't remember. In fact, Black Hawk Down wasn't it just Josh Hartnett on the cover? I think so. I remember him, yeah, squatting next to a fridge or something. I can't remember. Squatting next to Dennis Quaid next to a <laughs> fridge. <laughs> next to a helicopter. Yes. <laughs> it was a strange they clearly thought he was in for bigger things, didn't they? Slapping him on the poster. There. Yeah, like out of that ensemble cast, oh, it's got to be Josh. <laughs> yeah. when, when was Black Hawk Down? 2001? Yeah. Because I watched uh, Oh. Yeah, was it? Was it after? It must be. Was it just after Gladiator? 
which was 2000 so it yeah. would make sense uh, but then i've seen hollywood homicide which i'm going to talk about in this episode and that's from 2003 and i can tell you on the strength of that that he was not destined for greater things <laughs> yeah so, he must have done the black dot earlier crap like that as well in that time anyway so, so the donna the, the donna party. party yeah here we are um shall i just introduce who richard donner is yeah that'd be cool i think that'd probably be wise um well, he wasn't always called Richard Donner. His actual real name is Richard Donald Schwarzberg. Good. Uh, born in 1930 in New York. So around the same time as Kubrick. Um, he Apparently he did some military service and then he adopted the stage name when he got into directing TV in the 50s and 60s. He did like uh, Twilight Zone and Man From U.N.C.L.E. and a bunch of Wild West stuff. Uh, then he did a couple of films and then he broke through with... The Omen in 1976. You watched The Omen, didn't you, Laszlo? I did, yes. Did you enjoy I, it? I did. It. I, I really did. And I hadn't seen it before. So it was kind mm. of an interesting, one of those ones that, you know, you, you plan to watch for your entire life and, and then only eventually get around to years and years later. But, um, yeah, I did enjoy it. I have yeah. a few notes, which we will get to, I'm sure. This is a, a horror film with Gregory Peck and David Warner. I, I think <clears throat> this seemed to be part of that brief horror movement in the 70s, which focused on like religious paranoia, like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby, I suppose, are in that same, same canon. Um, um, and it's, and it's, also got that idea of like evil satanic evil arriving in the form of a possessed child and the apocalypse being like the uh the corruption of the family unit which is also what texas chainsaw mask is about actually another 70s horror uh yeah anyway what did you was there anything specific you wanted to say about the omen apart from it's a good film which it is um i thought it was interesting that I, like I took out of it, that it reminded me of Final Destination, which I know is like mm-hmm. a backwards oh, right. way of coming at it. But I was like, ah, this is, I totally get where they nicked all that stuff from with Final yeah. Destination because there's so many scenes where they sort of you're waiting for the horrible thing to happen, and it's just a matter of what it will be and when. Yeah, and yeah. Go, oh, it's going to be that thing. Oh no, okay, well that's all right. Does, does, oh, it do the fi- does it do the final destination thing where it like zooms in or just like hangs on something like a shard of glass for a bit too long or like a a, a creaking branch of a tree and you think, oh come yeah. on, baby, yeah, Maybe something yeah. like that. Like why are they transporting those sheets of glass? Okay, um, <laughs> that's not the. La- By the way, that's not the last we're going to hear of uh, Dev and Sawa uh, from Final <laughs> Destination in this episode. Um, wow, I, it, weirdly, in my notes I did mention um about the omen that it's it's almost like uh it reminded me a bit of like the slasher films of the 80s where it was actually a lot more about the kind of nature of the kills and the inventiveness of how people die in it as much as it is about atmosphere and the other stuff you know so i suppose that because in a way final destination was really that wasn't it in the end it was like you'd and then, uh, and then you, you got like the Saw movies after that, where you're really watching it for like the inventive ways that people are going to be murdered, basically. Um, and the photographs thing was another one where they have like 
photos show give you a little clue about how they're right. going to get killed and yeah it did yeah. make me think that was when when uh, is it gregory peck yes the main guy and he's talking to photographer and he reveals that thing the first thing you would do is go right snap me but he, de- he doesn't he'd be like i i need to know how i'm gonna die if this thing is actually if this works <laughs> like come on here we go but he doesn't and it was like, ah, that's an odd choice <laughs> i think on a, a general level i think this kind of showed what richard donner would excel at in his career which was taking like a quite a closed genre making it accessible to everyone and giving it kind of mass mass appeal because the omen is a lot more kind of accessible than like say the exorcist or rosemary's baby for example and then you've got like superman which brought comic books to the masses and then you got lethal weapon which which took the pretty grotty gritty cop thriller away from ultra violence and excessive machismo and then something like lady hawk feminizing uh quite a geeky male dominated world high fantasy uh so yeah i'm waiting for you to get to assassins by the way <laughs> That is, I, I I think I stop about 1987 or something. No, I stop at Maverick. <laughs> so, so that was 1976, The Omen. And then in 1978, he made a little indie movie called Super Superman. Something was it? Was it? A, was it a big deal? Was it for the time? Um, yeah. Because my, my my sort of generally like I come into this at about 1987 with Lethal Weapon, but with <laughs> Superman, was it a big? Was it a big budget for the time, or was it literally just like, oh, use a bit of cash? We don't know how this is going to do, so best of luck. It was a big deal. It was going to be a Spielberg movie, but I think he was doing Close Encounters. Um, I'm sure to be probably. Oh, sorry, Laszlo knows the. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm clearly going to edit that out. <laughs> I'm sure Laz knows <clears throat> the history of Superman better than I do. But I will say, sorry, I was, I, was, I will say that up to that point, like, it, I find it constantly surprising that there really wasn't anything before Superman. No films at all. There literally wasn't a single film. No, that's not. Well, so I mean, if but if you look at the super, the history of superhero movies, right, prior to 1978, it is a pretty sorry sight. I've got to say, like, in the 40s, there were like DC adaptations because that was a new brand and it was a big deal then. Um, and I suppose because a world war probably made the idea of a magical savior quite appealing, but, and I suppose, and then you got like the Japanese doing some stuff like Astro Boy and things, but then, and then you got Adam West doing his Batman in the sixties. Well, really, there's the nothing, team, nothing the in team, the, the Batman Adam West that was am, am I right in thinking that the Batman movie was just a load of episodes tied together so I, I'm not sure I don't think it was episodes tied together it was a complete movie but it certainly didn't have a budget any bigger than an episode as far as I can see it's very silly <laughs> but yeah there wasn't anything and then you know along came Richard Donner anyway sorry Javier you were saying Laszlo you were saying there's <laughs> um, two two edits so far. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it'll be fine. Um, the yeah, I, I watched Superman two rather than Superman one is my 
revisit of okay. Superman because I think it's got the more interesting kind of production history behind it. Well, the first one obviously was a, as big as you know Star Wars at the time. It was a great success, but they shot the second one and the first one at the same time, so it's all kind of. Uh, but it came to a crunch when it came to finishing Superman two. So that was the one I thought I'm going to rewatch. I rewatched his version of Superman 2. The Donner uh, Cut. The Donner Cut. And mainly because I'm so familiar with Superman 2, I was like, I want to rewatch that and, and re-examine the differences between those two. And, uh, yeah, it's in, it's very interesting to watch. If you know the, the original cut so well enough to see how the scenes that were done by Richard Lester really, really stick out. <laughs> And uh, the quality is not consistent, you could say. <laughs> is, it was it totally, noticeably, is it Yeah. Was it noticeably yeah. lesser quality? Yeah. Well, as a, a, a an example would be like the attack on the White House, which was shot by Richard Donner, is, and they punched it up a bit more in in the Donner cut. There's like Zod shooting people with a machine gun and stuff, which is quite fun. Um, not as kiddie friendly as you might think. And then the scene where they're in the redneck kind of town was oh, shot yeah. by Richard Lester in Surrey, weirdly enough. Um, yes. And that is, yeah, noticeably sort of goofier and poorly staged. And yeah, that's it's kind of, you know, oh, yes, there is there is a difference here. And, and listening to his commentary through that scene, you could tell he's he's struggling through it because they cut out as much as they could and but they had to leave the bare bones in, otherwise the film wouldn't make any sense. And mm-hmm. yeah, you can tell it's a little painful for him to to go through. So if I I'm right? gonna, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say so, like the Superman films, um, I, I've probably seen them as a child. But if I was, could you watch? Could I? The Superman two, the, the Donner cut is is the one to watch. And could you comfortably watch that without watching the, the the initial film, or would you need to watch the initial film to get an idea of what's going on? I mean, the story of Superman's pretty straightforward anyway, I suppose. Yeah, you you can definitely follow the story fine. It, it is a little jarring because they've done things like cut in test footage of the actors here and there to kind of to replace the scenes that were reshot or, or restaged by Richard Lester. Um, I, but I have to be honest, which is a bit sacrilegious on this dedication to Richard Donner. I prefer the original cut, but oh, really? I think that's okay. just because it is, it's a little pacier and it's yeah. a little more, um, consistent in the quality of the footage and, and that kind of thing. You don't have to make excuses for bits of it that, uh, you know, have clearly been kind of slapped in. And they've also added some modern effects here and there that really stick Ooh. out. And, Ooh. Yeah. This what, reminds Star Wars style? Yeah. Oh, but, oh. But, but, but they intentionally aped old tech with the special effects. So they, they, you know, they could have done a full quality CG shots, but they've used very primitive kind of uh, green screen effects okay. and it looks quite bad. And you're like, oh, see what you're thinking. But it's, mm. yeah. This reminds me of like the uh, the lost cut of Nightbreed that they found before it got redone properly where it was being passed around all the film festivals and it was like the, you know, the original footage. And then when it cut to the, the other footage, it was basically just people using their hands as glove puppets and putting on voices. And you think <laughs> that, yeah, it's that's jarring, that is. Yeah. <laughs> well the cabal cut is now available isn't it 
remastered. So, yeah. Um, am I right, Laszlo, in saying that Mario Puzo wrote the script for both one and two, Superman yes. one and two, and actually yes. he wrote it as a single big block, and yeah. and Donna was filming them back to back, but then they kind of stopped halfway through or something. Yeah, they they basically shot all of part one and a good chunk for about half of part two. And then they decided to sort of, cause it was costing so much money and they were so far over schedule. They said, right, let's stop production on two, wrap up one, release that. And then we'll see how that goes. And then we'll come back to two. And I think they mm. were always plotting to get rid of Donna in that because he was quite difficult to manage for the producers and they weren't hugely experienced producers it was kind of an odd there's like an odd pairing there of a guy with loads of money who didn't really know what he was doing um and they had all those sort of famous actors involved so donna wanted to bring back um brando who was extortionately expensive and they didn't want to bring him back so this was another sticking point where they then shot scenes with the mother of superman instead of Brando because that means they would have had to pay Brando again if, even if he just appeared in the second one. Brando had a so, percentage, didn't he? Yes, a big healthy one. Yeah. A percentage weird of one. They, they got funding. Ninety <laughs> percent body fat. Could, yeah, he could pinch more than an inch. That's for sure. <laughs> in the in the score, I'm pretty sure he didn't stand up for less than fifty grand. And even then, it was just to go to the door to get a Chinese. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, Superman. Um, I read that the Writers Guild of America refused to credit Tom Mankovich for basically rewriting the, the whole script. And that was when Donna himself... Uh, gave him a creative consultant credit on the film, which I thought was quite a nice little story about Richard Donner. Yeah, I think that was the first time that credit had ever been used. Ah, yeah. right. So he was probably just a massive script doctor, script surgeon, and just came in and. Yes. And is he isn't he a relative of um, the Mank? The Mank. The oh, wait, film. I would think so. Yeah, probably. He's like his grandson son. or nephew or something. Probably could just be son, couldn't it, at that time? There's... Yes. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Done my homework. So do we want to talk about Lethal Weapon then? Or more specifically, Britt, do you want to talk about Lethal Weapon then? Well, I, I'm Are we skipping Lady Hawk? Oh, yeah, we, we can't skip Lady Hawk. Lady Hawk. Seeing as we skip. went out of our way to watch Lady Hawk. I mean, the least Which I haven't films seen we, before. No, I haven't. At least the weapon films we can put in in one effectively. But we yeah, need, okay. are you going to you going to talk about the Goonies as well? I've never seen the Goonies, but I know that it is a very important film for a lot of people from our generation. It is, and it's a good, it's a good film. I always found the final battle a bit theatrical and underwhelming, but otherwise it's a nice adventure. I think what I like about the Goonies is that it captures the sense of adventure from childhood by kind of setting this sort of indiana jones style of adventure dungeon just under our feet and it's like it's that exhilarating feeling of exploring somewhere forbidden as a child which 
in reality is probably quite dingy and dull it's just a cave or whatever but actually our imagination fills in the rest and i think it kind of captures that quite nicely and it's quite wholesome really um but yeah and of course early josh brolin i remember watching that like because i we listened to your review of it before and it was an interesting one because i have such weirdly specific kind of memories of that film um and i haven't watched it for years but i just remember being obsessed with booby traps after yeah. that film and and literally trying to make you know like he has in the garden where he's got the sort of strings that attach yeah. to things and and i remember doing that in my bedroom trying to set up like a mechanism that i could pull a string from my bed and it would open my bedroom door by like hooking this bit of <laughs> string around the edges of the room it didn't so work but it was like I, I needed that to happen because I wanted to be like the Goonies. <laughs> it's a very uh, warm film, I would say, and it does have a nice atmosphere. It's very, uh, yeah. It's he uh, what he does really well, Richard Donner in that, which I think only really Spielberg could do as well. Is um, is he could capture that kind of like uh, chaotic nature of children when they're together and talking and like talking over each other and the, the chaotic nature of like kids interacting which is very hard to capture uh but yeah Spielberg does it really well as well but uh it, it, I think it probably comes down to just working well with child actors because I, I can't see how else they could have done it is that like as in super dark times I think is another recent example of that that when right. there's children in a forest together you think yeah, I can. I believe that. I believe yeah. the, the way those kids are interacting and the stuff they're saying. Right. Yeah, and of course, Cop Car, slightly different movie, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's painful when you're watching a film because films with with children in them, uh, mm-hmm. when when the dialogue that is written by like an older person and it's not landing, yes. that's pretty much the film done. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's quite important. Mm. I can see why the Goonies is very important to people of a certain generation i think brit as far as you're concerned if you've never seen it before i think it's worth a watch like i think you'd probably regard it as a well-made enjoyable movie but uh, i I, th- I think my version of the goonies was just um because i never really watched stand by me until i was an adult either would be right. uh the never-ending story i watched a lot as a kid that's like the one or the princess bride they are the yeah. ones that i think um i i would i would return to a lot and think yeah this is good that is how about Lady Hawk? Would you return to that? I've never seen Lady Hawk, which is <laughs> astonishing because it's got Rutger Hauer in. It was um I can't even I don't even know when he made this. When was this? Eighty five? Eighty six five, yeah. Five ninety five. Okay. Uh it, this is like a high fantasy movie. Um which I always struggle with. I struggle with older i struggle basically with pre-21st century high fantasy because basically peter jackson raised the bar so high with uh, lord of the rings so it's quite difficult going back to these but this is it's quite a nicely shot and it's got some gorgeous scenery good production design i found it a bit slow to get moving uh it's sort of somewhere between high fantasy and this weird grounded historical revisionism uh um i quite like the the central idea um of the of the focus being on this the knight's hand rather than the knight himself i don't just mean rutger Hauer's hand i mean literally matthew broderick as a kind of kid who's basically hanging around with him 
but really it's sort of a, a, a film about star-crossed lovers never quite meeting because one becomes a wolf at night and the other becomes a hawk by day uh, and the two lovers are Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer who I wouldn't have put together necessarily I think Rucker would have I think Rucker would have put them together <laughs> he, he benefits out of that more than anyone yeah so it's I think approached as a, more of a tragic love story it's it works better I think it gets better as it goes on it's just it's pretty slow to get moving what did you think yeah. Laszlo I thought yes and and weirdly jumpy editing at the yeah. beginning and stuff it literally kind of hops from yeah. staring at a wall to then people being hung and you're hanged rather and and, and you're like why was there a shot of a wall and and but it does come back to it but it's it's as an opening shot it's literally a wall and it's just <laughs> and it's what is interesting is it's edited by Stuart Baird who also edited I think Superman and he and he ended up directing Executive Decision amongst other films but he was basically a go-to guy in Hollywood for fixing films in post he was the guy who they would call in if your film is a complete right. mess and he would edit it into shape, which is then odd oh. then to watch a film like this and think, oh, the editing is a bit odd and it's a bit slow. Yeah. And a bit long. So anyway, that did stand out, which I don't normally think about when you're watching something, the editing being a bit jumpy and stuff. But I, I think when you, when you, when you're watching a film and the editing stands out, it, it's always bad. I, I, because it feels like something you shouldn't really need to notice. Um, well, no, not in a film like that, certainly. No. You, you just to say as well, Rupert, you saying that like you've got a problem with high fantasy. I remember <clears throat> my grandfather, bless his cotton socks, constantly watching David Carradine in The Warrior and the Sorceress, and the cover is a drawn picture of David Carradine sporting a physique that has never been with us in the reality, <laughs> and. <laughs> And I remember watching it uh, a few years ago and thinking, oh, my grandfather used to watch this all the time. And it's basically uh, really, uh, really stagey. It's like David Carradine walking up some steps to someone and this warlord complaining about another warlord. And then David Carradine walking down the steps and up another set of steps to the other warlord and saying, I oh, called you a knob. And, and it's that for 80 minutes until like there's a really badly choreographed fight. Uh, and I just I can see why you lean more towards modern high fantasy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I suppose if you boil down Lady Hawk to its essentials, then really it's just Rutger Hauer and Matthew Broderick talking about how hot Michelle Pfeiffer is for eight minutes. <laughs> yeah, which they could have just really filmed in the pub after they'd finished filming. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think there's some some quite fun knockabout action scenes. And yeah. you get some committed performances from actors who I think are, are miscast, <laughs> like uh, like Matthew Broderick's accent is well, it's all over the continent. It really is, and I'm just yeah. not sure about Rutger Hauer in that role alongside it. And Michelle Pfeiffer's really good in it, though. Yeah, kind of wasted. Yeah, she's very pretty, and that, and you kind of waiting for her to have an active part in the story but she yeah. really is just kind of a, a prize for him to get to when he maybe or maybe not resolves the issue yeah because she doesn't really do any fighting or anything unless she's a hawk hmm. whereas yeah. he gets to fight in whatever form he's in 
It's a shame, really, to say that because I specifically remember um, reading an interview with Michelle Pfeiffer um, about 10 years ago. And she said it's, you know, when women in Hollywood reach a certain age, it's difficult for them to get certain parts. And it's just depressing to think that this was 1985 and she was wasted. And then, Mm. you know, she was in Batman Returns in 92 and a few films in the 90s. And then, you know, up until What Lies, was it What Lies Beneath? Yes. And then after that, it just drifted away a little bit. And you think, Mm. yeah, it's like, so there's like a 10, 20 year golden period for her, really. And then, yeah, it's. I don't know what she's been up to recently since um what was that f- what was that film with um Johnny Depp where they play vampires? It's not Jim Jarmusch uh, one, is it? Is it dark like... something? Not Dark oh. Shadows, oh yeah, that one. Yes. 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 <clears throat> she was in a couple of Marvel things recently. But, yeah. Used well or mm. Not so much. She's still alive, so they may make use of her yet. And she hasn't, I mean, she's still, like, amazingly glamorous and hot. Like, mm. it's, she didn't go down the same path as, like, dare I say it, Meg Ryan, for example. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or I dare say it, Courtney Cox. Yeah. Or Franka Janssen. Oh, my God. You could open bottles on that woman's face. It's not good. <laughs> Honestly. Um, okay, so after Lady Hawk, I suppose it's, it's it, lethal weapon. It's got to be lethal weapon, isn't it? Really? Yeah, at least the weapon for me is is the hallmark of of buddy comedies because I suppose before you had like forty eight hours, which is just racist, but then there was there was <laughs> it there is, was so it, is. It, it is racist. Um, but then I think with lethal weapon, it's it's it's, it's there's like a warmth to it to to the like. I know we're talking about the whole series, but at least the weapon is a is a film that everyone everyone seems to enjoy. There's because there's there's genuine warmth to it and there's genuine chemistry between the actors. And uh, I didn't realize until uh, Laszlo mentioned it a year ago that there was a whole thing about the fact that he's tugging at the very start in his caravan. I didn't realize that was a thing because I just thought he was just just coughing and having a fag and then scratching his ass. <laughs> I'm not sure that, that is a thing. It's just something that I watched it and I went, was he having a, was he having a tug then? And it just, it may just be me. I, I don't know. I haven't looked it up. It may just have been you having a tug. That, that's it. <laughs> is, he, is he having a tug? And you look oh, up and say, oh, oh, no. that's, that, oh, that's a mirror. Reflection. It's me. It's me. It's me with my series of strings and pulleys that I'm building a Gibson. Where you you pull a string in your bedroom and your trousers fly out the window. A maga a magazine opens. A tape recorder presses play and says, "Mummy, I'm not doing anything. Don't come upstairs." And then the TV turns on static, really loud to cover the love screams. Uh, and then a load of Vaseline drops from the ceiling over your entire body. Um, so you're like, oh no, that's I'm not watching Lethal Weapon. I'm just I'm just doing this my thing. Um, <laughs> I'm just doing my, my thing, my Lethal Weapon. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm having a Goonies, but yeah, I didn't realize. That. I, I honestly, when you said, I thought, oh, I'll have to rewatch that. I didn't, I didn't take that little tidbit. But now you saying that has ruined it again because now I realize it's just like a localized sexual fantasy that you have. <laughs> it's not even something that I thought I'd missed all the years. Yeah. Um, yeah. what in about... my head it went on for 10 minutes but, but <laughs> it's, it's mere seconds on screen <laughs> but yeah no, I, I, I basically I, I do really like Lethal Weapon and I know we've said that we like the whole series Richard Donner's um, 
in involvement it, it's interesting that he did direct all of them and the the tonal shifts that go on were they written by different people because they do get sort of more family friendly as as they go on well I, arguably the second one's harsher than the first one but definitely the third and fourth are rated 15 yeah um, i it does there does seem to be a, a definite move towards the family friendly i kind of think of it as almost like a proto fast and furious or at least and an, uh, like similarities in its trajectory to the Fast and Furious series, because that was a franchise which was quite hard nosed in the beginning, but then has become almost uh, well, it's about family, isn't it? About the theme of family in a really contrived way. Lethal Weapon did it better because it's for a start, it has an actual family, Danny Glover's, and doesn't just mm. construct a family out of the bad guy from the previous movie, for example, and. And I think that's where its warmth comes from and how it it sets it apart from, well, like the aforementioned uh, cop movies that came before it, really, which were always a little bit brutal and cynical. I mean, 48 Hours is like, it's comedy on some level, but it's pretty hard. Beverly Hills Cop, the same, you know, it's pretty, pretty brutal. Hasn't got that same sincerity and warmth that Lethal Weapon brought into it. I wouldn't say. Yeah, and and also it's you've got a black and a white, uh, you know, sort of a partner team, and the, and there's no, that's never really a thing in the no, film. Apart, apart from yeah. apart from in the, the 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 single joke, in the in the second one about you know, but you're black sort of thing, but yeah, it's it's it, it's much more about the genuine camaraderie between them than 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 anything than like oh look one black and one's white oh look one straight one's gay that sort of thing that's not like the main joke that holds no. it together. And, that, and, that's, and imagine that, how dated, imagine how dated the films would be if that had been the basis of the the humour and the banter. Yeah, probably would have dated about as well as Forty Eight Hours. In fact, I think like yeah, it's interesting that you know to bring that up about the family aspect in it because that's one thing that seems quite a theme. Because I was trying to work out if there's a Richard Donner style or something that marks them as his films and i haven't really happened upon it because he kind of changes shifts you know genres yes in, in with these films and adapts accordingly but there is a consistent theme of sort of warmth weirdly like yeah. family and it seems like he cares about people and he manages to make the audience care about people which is something that in more cynical scripts like you know those buddy cop films yeah. they don't do that they're not really interested in people particularly they just want to be funny or they want to be shocking or whatever yeah and i think he and he probably injects that into the first lethal weapon where maybe that wasn't even quite as apparent in the script as it would have been um yeah and yeah which is and, and i think as they go along that becomes a bigger thing because he probably had more say in the direction of the scripts as they went along and it does make sense that Riggs becomes less lethal and becomes more of a, you know, more like Danny Glover because he's kind of living off him and his family and it's making him improve as a person. So he isn't such a a, a dangerous character, I guess. Yeah, he's not so reckless, is he? Because he has something to live for. Because the whole point is in the first, you know, in the first place, he's got nothing to live for, really. He's literally living in a caravan, tugging mm. on it, nothing to do. <laughs> 
<laughs> it, yeah, it's easy to forget. He literally points a gun in his face and is about to blow yeah. his brains out. First that's a that's like, a great scene. That's one of my favorite one. scenes. When it with that that scene where he's watching the cartoons and he puts it in his mouth, and he's looking at the picture of his wife. I think that's one of the best scenes in the first film. It's good, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I know what you mean about just that general thing about Richard Donner is there was this kind of earnestness and lack of cynicism, which probably is his hallmark, perhaps. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, onto Maverick, <laughs> cynical <I'm>, cash grab. <laughs> <laughs> we <laughs> we haven't mentioned Scrooge yet. Yeah, oh, I was, I'm glad we went back to this because Scrooge to me is, although it's like a really dark film, I, I have to say that I, I, I've personally have always questioned, as much as I like him as a person, I've questioned Bill Murray's um, comedic chops because I, I, although I like films he's in, I wouldn't say that I find him a particularly funny man. Um, mm-hmm. And going back to Scrooge, I think when I when I think about it, you think of people like Bobcat Goldthwaite yeah. or even um, I always get them mixed up. I want to say Karen Allen. Is that right? Is it Karen Allen in that film? She's in that. Yeah. That's yeah. Her. Karen Allen. Or, or the the guy that, that really sadly freezes to death. It's all the other characters that I remember that have an impact on me. And the fairy who just constantly beats up Bill That's Murray. So funny. But Bill Murray is a good centerpiece in this. Um, because of his unmanageable hair, which is almost the character in itself in this film, because it's just as wild as he as he loses his mind. Um, uh, yeah, and I think Scrooge is weird because it's really dark. It's a genuine Christmas film, but everyone seems to really like it. I, I don't think I've met anyone who doesn't like Scrooge, and uh, and I know Faye's a big fan of it. And it's one we do watch every year. Mm. We don't watch Mister. We don't watch Mister Destiny every year with, with James Belushi, who's got equally unmanageable hair. Now that I say it, but. Mm. But yeah, the Scrooge is again. It was I didn't realize it was really directed by Richard Donner because, as as Laszlo just said, there's it's not like there's a certain style. It's not like when you watch a Michael Bay film, you're like, yeah, it's okay, I can see what's going on here. It's 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 more. It's almost like he um, uh, directs for the script as opposed to says, oh, I'm going to put my stamp on this. Yeah, well, he does like. I, I, he's not a hack exactly but he, he does what he needs to for the project and uh but each of the each of the projects like it's is he makes it as good as it can possibly be in a way Do you know what i mean it's like they're very hermetically sealed these movies you know like the goonies can the goonies feels that way it feels like a lived-in world and uh, and then you got something like scrooge which i think is Bill Murray's best comic performance. I can't think of a better one, honestly. Better than Groundhog Day? I think so. I think there's more range in Scrooge, just because of the places he has to go. uh, Mm. And the fact that he's got other good comic performers he's bouncing off. Um, Which he really, you know, like with Groundhog Day... This will, come up, this, will, this will come up again later on with um, with Exit Wounds with Steven Seagal, which is his best film because of who he's surrounded by. Um, but with with going back to Scrooge, I think that you're right. I was as you were talking, then you said this is his best performance, comic performance. I was sort of scrolling through my mind and I thought, oh, no, the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. But then it's the set pieces. Mm-hmm that yeah. it's not bill murray i don't think bill murray is a particularly funny man i think <laughs> he he can be used to effect but he's never the best thing about the film he's in no 
yeah, I I think I'd agree with that. I think I think he's really good in Scrooge anyway because just the the kind of range that he has to show in it, and it's it's it feels like a really committed performance. Maybe that's another thing about Richard Donner that's underrated is just how good the performances are that he gets out of people. Uh, and that's what kind of what I mean about the hermetically sealed part of it is like if you can get everyone to give their best work, you know, give a hundred percent to to the movie, then it really elevates it. Like if you can get Marlon Brando to take Superman seriously, then he must be doing something right. Yeah. It's true. Apparently, he and really I... did as well. Like, it, like yeah. he really got on with Brando, and and Brando really enjoyed playing that character. Which you just think that is such a paycheck role. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and he did make you know he did make a good dime out of it. But apparently, yes, he did really care about, it and he did want to come back in second if Richard Donner was on it. And in respect to Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman refused to come back after Donner was fired. Which was really? another thing. Yeah. Oh. So all of the scenes in Superman 2 that were shot by Richard Lester are body doubles, which is quite an wow. interesting thing. You can pick together when you watch the new one and you go, ah, I see. That's how they got him from there to there, because there's a bit where Zod just like picks him up and carries him across. And it's clearly a double and plunks him in the position he needed to be to rejoin the footage that Donna had shot and stuff like that. <laughs> Oh I can God. I can imagine that the reason that Gene Hackman didn't come back for the reshoots by Richard Lester was because he probably went on Wikipedia and looked at his filmography and thought, no, <laughs> I, I don't think I will actually. Yeah, I don't even know what else he did. Can you? Maybe no. nothing. Superman three. <laughs> That's it. Did he come back for Superman three? Yeah. Of course he did. That was a different film. Um, Anyway. Jump ship. (laughs) Um, And again, with Scrooge, there's that kind of wholesomeness, the earnestness, which is Donna's hallmark, to the point where the ending is extremely sentimental. But there you go. And yet, yeah, extremely sentimental. And yet, is it earned? Because it Uh, is is a wild ride. It is the whole point of the, you know, Christmas Carol. So, yeah. Uh, what One about... lingering memory of of Scrooge is where the ghost guy like holds him out of a window or something, and mm. his arm breaks apart. Oh, yeah. yeah, that I remember seeing that in the cinema as a kid and going, "Oh, I was like going to spew," and it's stuck <laughs> with me ever since. <laughs> it's and that's disgusting. Like Twenty five years or so. Yeah, that, the whole sequence where his old boss comes in is just falling apart with the mice going around his mind, and then, and then the the, the eye being a golf ball in the glass and stuff. And yeah. I think that's the the genius scene of that because that's when he start. That's when, even when it comes back to reality, in his in his, um, I think Bob Cackolter comes in and says, "You're right, boss," and he's just like already laughing maniacally, and you're 15 minutes in, like he's he's already lost it. Um, <laughs> good. Um, so I suppose this takes us on to yeah, Maverick, which is a film I've seen a lot, but not recently. I saw it a lot as a teenager, and I remember finding it like a, a really enjoyable. But it's very light. It's a very light yeah. film. Yeah, it almost feels too light for the '90s. Somehow, it's from. It feels like it's from a different era. I, I, I do think it's nice that Maverick harks back to. Richard Donner's first directing experiences in the 50s because of course he was doing a range of western tv shows and 
and it does have this kind of old-fashioned goofiness about it and of course then you've got the casting of like James Garner and Coburn and James Garner actually starred in the Maverick TV series I think uh, oh the 50s TV show yeah and it it's kind of weird seeing Mel Gibson in such a goofy wholesome role but this was that was him in the 90s wasn't it that was Mel before the mishaps <laughs> <laughs> Mel before the mishaps you think, yeah thinking about it, it Mel Gibson was almost like his, his muse because you had the Lethal Weapon four Lethal Weapon films Maverick and Conspiracy Theory you probably tried to get him cast in Assassins as well probably but, it's, uh, it's weird yeah. thing is it that yeah as we've been putting, talking about Richard Donner is this like warm kind of personality that he would be best buds with someone who, who's clearly got a lot of of hate in him mm. he must have been i don't know there must have been something about richard donner's personality that you know if he can work with some of these people like brando was notoriously difficult at that stage wasn't he i mean he was a nightmare mm. and i don't think mel gibson's necessarily a difficult character on set but he's not i mean he's not the most wholesome character <laughs> again with 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 marlon brando i know uh watch some documentaries and apparently in the score 2003 he wouldn't even turn his head unless it was for someone to, <laughs> to insert a full cavalry scream back into his mouth on that film wrapper on <laughs> um, um and yet and conspiracy theory i watched recently uh and uh, again it's just a fun film it's very light and very silly and so like goofy is a good word for it but it's not bad and i'm wondering if there are any looking at his we've talked about his filmography now i mean i you we're getting to the end now uh, 16 blocks and stuff like that but i i'm I, wondering i rewatched if, 16 blocks all i remember is how irritating <laughs> mo's Def's voice was it really yes. struggled with it yes like it really, it, almost immediately I, I was like oh fuck, i forgot about that voice it's, it's is like he putting a, it on it's like a nasally whine isn't it yes i can it? talk like this yeah oh, come on yeah come on it, bruce no don't call him bruce <laughs> yeah that would be bad there would be like donna would say cut <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> but yeah I, i'm wondering if he's ever made a bad film where richard donna well, of the ones I've seen, right, none of them have been bad. Uh, you know, like, well, which ones have I seen? The Omen, the Goonies, yeah, Lethal Weapon. I mean, Lady Hawk is flawed, definitely. But it's well-meaning and earnest and uh, and pretty to look at. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I haven't seen a bad film by him, but then I haven't seen Assassins, so... Oh yeah, we kind months. of skipped that, haven't we? That's that's one that's not reviewed very well. That feels like a challenge. Is that I the think. one with um, what's his face? Antonio From Banderas. Desperado, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Written by the Wachowskis as well. Oh really? Oh, I see. It Maybe worth the revisit. All I remember about Assassins, um, I mix it up in my head with the Specialist because of Sylvester Stallone, and there's a sex scene in the Specialist in the largest shower in Europe. But I'm pretty sure it's Assassins that ends with 
just him and Antonio Banderas having a really boring sniper shootout in sort of like Roman ruins or something. And it's just them pointing going, and then a bit of dust. And then they sort of move around a bit and it and it repeats. And I'm, I'm pretty sure it's re- really boring ending. I'd have to rewatch it, though. Is there a scene in Lady Hawk where Rutger Hauer stands up at the parapet of a castle um, at night as... Michelle Pfeiffer's flying around and then he he leans over and sort of parts his cheeks and shouts to the night, you don't want to fly up there, mate. That was in the Donna cut. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was like the foot. It's like it's like a commando with his the special edition is like three extra minutes. Um and it's buzz sauce to the face. Yeah, that's what I remember. and Arnie dropping out of a plane from 14,000 feet, landing on his coccyx in an ankle-high swamp and looking at the camera and saying, I'd be dead. <laughs> I love that moment where he like lands in the swamp. You could tell he's just jumped off a platform maybe two metres high. Yeah. It's like no velocity. <laughs> he's come, coming in at the wrong angle. Oh, yeah, it's just so convincing. Brilliant. It's the best film ever made. Yeah. So it is. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's our love letter. Unless I'm missing something, anyone else wants to jump in with? I don't uh, think so. I think uh, we've established that it seems like Richard Donald was a good man, and his goodness and earnestness shone through in his movies. So absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and, and even just talking about them, and I think one of the best things that you can say about a, a, a director like that is talking about the films makes you want to watch them again. Yes. Um, which is obviously when you're a filmmaker, I suppose the highest accolade you can get from your audience is that they will get rewatched. And yeah, I do ironically after this podcast, I want to watch assassins and <laughs> that's the one you took away from. The that's what I took away. It's like, I, I, you know, is it the specialist I've seen? But um, generally yeah, any of those films we discussed tonight, I, I, it's not just that I would watch them again. I will watch them again because they are films I keep coming back to. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every Christmas I will watch Lethal Weapon and Scrooge. And yeah, I, I, I have seen The Omen a few times and I'm keen to watch um, Lady Hawk. It's just one that's completely passed me by. It's Yeah, it's kind of unique in that in the silly fantasy canon of the 80s, really. So, Rupert, now we move on. And it is time for you to talk about, uh, as I dash off to pour a drink, to talk mm. about the um, the first film you've got on your list. Okay, let's do it. Uh, Land of the Dead, which is on oh. Prime. This was made in 2005. This was the fourth of George Romero's six of the Dead movies. Um, kind of like... George Miller rekindling Mad Max uh, after 30 years because Day of the Dead, of course, was made in 1985. So it's kind of similar. Like, Did this have the same impact? What, in terms of like being a big movie? In terms of being any good at all? Well, I avoided this movie for a long time, Land of the Dead, because I didn't want to witness the demise of George Romero because I loved the original of the dead films but it's actually just as good as previous oh, wow. installments which uh, and like george romero he he makes this zombie stuff just so effortless he's 
he's got such a natural knack for horror and it's really gross like splatter horror as well and that's fine because he's always done that i mean like night of the living dead is just disgusting in its own way and it's it has got that kind of the brashness and those bold production values of a lot of like early 2000s action horror um so this time around uh romero's target is uh socio-economic inequality the haves and the have-nots so dennis hopper of course represents the decadence of the haves he runs the the green as in fiddler's green it's a it's this decadent central city where the wealthy hang out without having to worry about the zombies outside where all the poor people are so there's a there's a bit of like battle angel elita in that concept i suppose and like the rich people have a they'll have like a carnival where they have their photo taken with zombies and they'll shoot them with paintballs and watch them fight and stuff so classic romero stuff um john leguizamo is this rogue dude who's threatening to take down dennis hopper with a big tank simon baker whom i fancy is arrested and he is tasked with taking down leguizamo in order to buy his freedom so it's like the rich getting their poor people to kind of fight on their behalf sort of thing um meanwhile the dead the zombies they're getting organized they're led by a particularly sharp ex gas station attendant and they're forming an army preparing to march on the city and it it did, I found it kind of set out quite an interesting observation, actually. Like, if, if the zombies are on autopilot, if they're instinctive, then they they have no free will. And therefore, they're not morally reprehensible in the way that humans can be, you know, like in the way that humans can be conniving and scheming. So, uh, and of course, the humans are conniving and scheming in this corrupt world. But zombies, the zombies themselves are kind of incorruptible. So it's quite a nice little observation there as well on Romero's part so it's got it's got a lot of scope it's got humor it's got social commentary loads of gore it's got action characters world building atmosphere and all for under 20 million dollars so I thought it was a cracking little movie I'm really surprised by this because I've avoided it for the same reason yeah Um, well really quickly uh, sorry Laszlo uh, before before we go into another edit, um, Brit, that's three, by the way, when you hear this. Um, you I just want you, Laszlo, to close your eyes for a second. Um, okay, they're and, and so you, you're walking into a bar and the door is opening. I feel like I know this is going. You walk in and you, you can see uh, George Clooney on the door. He's welcoming you in with his beautiful voice. And you look to your left because you can hear like a slight squeaking sound. And David Strathern is just spinning around on a, on a stool that's slowly unscrewing. And you sit down and you look up and there's a barman and he turns to face you. And as he faces you, you think, before the night is out, I'm going to share a passionate kiss with this man. Which actor is that man? Bloody hell. Hmm. So, uh, this is a, a kissable actor barman. 
It's it has to be over forty. And <laughs> we we don't we don't need any weirdness going on. Um, <laughs> we don't want any of that. We don't need any seventeen, eighteen year olds. Yeah, a man over forty that you think, yeah, if we get into a conversation, and he leaned in, it would just a kiss would happen, kind of like Rupert with Patrick Wilson. Yeah. Hmm. Unfortunately, Simon Baker isn't over forty in this film, so you can't have him. I don't know what he looks like either. You you would if you saw him. Okay. Um, well, he looks tired. He looks very tired. Uh, I'll, I'll go with um, uh, Michael Bean. Oh wow! Nice. <laughs> okay, that's a Michael Bean idea. now. Yeah, why not? Okay. Good. Um, yeah, on the, going back He's to London then. His career's been pretty rugged. With the sympathetic eyes. <laughs> because I've seen Time Bomb, uh, which... <laughs> that film. Um, yeah, so I, I need to watch Time Bomb again, really. And I also need to re-watch uh, Retroactive with James Belushi. A film in which he fires 28 bullets out of a six-shot revolver without reloading. Um, uh, yeah, Land of the Dead. There's just as a little a byline, a little tie-in to... Um, uh, state of play there's a game called land of the dead road to fiddlers grim released in 2005 which was universally panned but actually it's quite brilliant as a jump scare simulator because a lot of the game is you walking around with this really ominous music and if you have headphones on and zombies just pound it out of bushes and scream as they run towards you so it's not a good game not good fps but it if you want if you want some jumps my god mm. it delivers um yeah not just and going back to the movie i haven't seen this but i will watch this this week now after that I review. Think it's definitely worth a watch apparently uh diary and survival the next ones really aren't good so i think i'll stop with land i i, I think the, the the isn't the sort of byword of the next two films like a fan footage thing I think one of them, yeah, the Diary is partly fan footage, yeah. Yeah, no. I think that's, that's where the trouble starts, isn't it? It's where the trouble so, always starts. I have a confession. I've not watched the original Romero films. At least I mm-hmm. think I watched the one in the shopping centre. Yeah, that's Dawn. That's it. I'm a bit of a rookie dish. But I did watch Land of the Dead at the cinema, I think. Ooh. And that was the one with the... Is there a bus that they turn yeah. into like a basically full of machine guns and they fly yeah. out the windows and stuff? Oh, yeah. No. And I remember thinking, this is quite cool. Like this is, you know, quite big scale action, yeah. but done cleverly on a low budget. But then, yes, I remember seeing the trailers for the follow up to that, which whatever that mm. was, Diary of the Dead. Yeah. And going, oh, they now it looks low budget. And now yeah. I'm less interested. Uh, I'm with you. OK, yeah. yeah. Um. Oh yeah, okay then. Well, but going from what you've both said, it's weird that you would watch Land of the Dead and and th- be so sort of enamoured with it, and think, oh, actually, that's really impressive what they've done, and then not go back and revisit the previous ones in the series, because I remember the original one being very cool and oddly timeless. Yeah, I should probably give it, give it a watch. Cause I, yeah, I, I think there's there's an age to those films which because I wasn't into it when i was younger and i look at it yeah. now and i go oh my god the makeup is like where the blood is you know the brightest red ever and mm. they just look like people with sort of dark makeup under their eyes and pale just makeup on and i was like oh, I, don't know. I think you'd be really surprised by like how high quality and intense the original night of the living dead was 
uh, an atmospheric, uh, despite some of the quite hammy acting, is like technically it's a really impressive film. And then yeah, like Dawn, Dawn's just really, it's again it's really atmospheric, really well made. Day of the Dead, I know less, but still good. Yeah, all worth I'm, it. All, all, all I'm sort of sensing is a day where we watch the first four back to back. Come on then, goodness. <laughs> that's right. That's what I'm sensing. Yeah. So well, I, I've got no excuse because I will literally watch any old tripe on Netflix now. <laughs> so I might as well watch films that people actually tell, say are good quality films. If you want to watch any old tripe, Dave, you've come to the right place because I'm <laughs> going to talk about Room 6 on Amazon Prime. And this is an American horror film directed by no one. It was directed by a ghost who was bequeathed the camera. And it stars Christine Taylor, which is Ben Stiller's wife, and Jerry O'Connell. And a very early performance by, um, who is the girl in Kick-Ass? Oh, and, yeah, what's her name? Oh, uh, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz. Yes. Chloe, yeah. Chloe Grace Moretz. So she's, she does very little in this film. So this is a, this is a film... Uh, starring Christine Taylor uh, was I, I I'm not going to say it because it, 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 it sounds it sounds offensive but well she's got weird hands um <laughs> like she's got like really big hands and they seem to always be like at the front and center of the frame and when you notice it at the start of the film you're like oh your hands are big and and they're always like being like waved around just in front of the camera um so it, it's Christine Taylor is a, is a, a school teacher who has uh, a husband played by Shane Brolly, who I recognized from the, as a werewolf in the Underworld series of films. Uh, he, he is Irish in this film. He plays an American. He doesn't totally disguise his accent. I'm not going to lie to you. And this is 2006. So what happens is uh, Christine Taylor, she gets into a car accident with her husband, or he's just proposed to her. And they get out of the car. They've crashed into Jerry O'Connell and his sister. And the everyone who's injured gets bundled into this weird ambulance and taken off to this hospital, and they they won't tell anyone any details. And you're left with uh, Christine Taylor teaming up with Jerry O'Connell to find out this sort of demonic hospital that their partners, uh, sorry, her partner and his sister have seemingly been taken to. And as she walks around the town trying to find out this hospital, uh, she finds that all of the um, all of the inhabitants she speaks to seem to have these sort of alternate demonic personas. I'm um, guessing that one or both of them died in that crash at the start. That's a twist. Oh, you've seen it, have you? <laughs> As if we've covered it on a previous episode, I'll, I'll start. The... Sorry, it was just my psychic um, abilities. Um, the, 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 I will say the good things about this film are the practical effects. They they really like when she when Christine Taylor sees like she's in um uh, for instance a police precinct and she's talking to the to the woman behind the reception and saying look I need to find this hospital I can't remember what it's called say it's called like Saint Rosemary's um oh it is actually called Saint Rosemary's um the the woman's like oh there's you know that burnt down a hundred years ago whatever and then she'd look at her again and then she would have twisted into this demonic persona and it's all practical effects which is impressive considering it's two thousand six and it, it, you're like oh that is actually really buzzing like eyes pumping blood over like really like twisted teeth or something yeah. um and it's all that stuff is good the problem is the script is absolutely diabolical um it, there's this weird thing because the whole thing takes place over one night and she has literally just been proposed to by a boyfriend before he gets in this like 
you know, almost fatal car accident carted off. She spends about five minutes with a weirdly um, Jack Nicholson eyebrow sporting, constantly gurning and grinning Jerry O'Connell. And then like almost sleeps with him. And you think, really? Because he's literally being really creepy. Um, and, and the film goes on and eventually they get to this hospital and it gets a bit CG-ish. And then it just boils down to her screaming and walking down corridors as Jerry O'Connell um, just says really portentous lines. And it is straight from TV. Um, this could have been made in the 90s because when I watched it, I thought this, this is a TV movie from the 90s. And it was only after I watched it that I found out it was from 2006 and thought... There's nothing here apart from those practical effects. There's nothing in this film to like really drag anyone in. Not even the fact that it's an early showing for Chloe Grace Moretz and the fact that Kane Hodder of Friday the 13th fame does a brief cameo. It's absolute nonsense. I don't think I'd recognize Kane Hodder. Really? He looks Mm. like someone, he looks like, um, he looks like someone's dad who's always leaning slightly backwards. Okay. Okay. You now know, we can picture him. You know, uh, yeah, he 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 plays Jason Voorhees in about three or four of the films. Yeah, and he also he also rocks up in um what's that film he rocks up in? the first Wishmaster. He's the one who has oh. a really bad CG death as a security guard who gets forced through like a a gap in a glass door. It's, but it's CG in that film, yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, Kane Hodder, he does look like he's constantly leaning back slightly because you think, why are you, why have you got no neck? Why, why are you just chest and then forehead? He <laughs> doesn't have a face either. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder they gave him a mask. And, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, 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 he looks like a thumb that someone has put glue on and then shaved near by an open window. Okay, <laughs> maybe I would recommend so, him then. Recommended this film. Who would have thought again? a film with Christine, whatever her name is, Layla. and Chloe O'Connell would not be a classic. <laughs> it's room six, and you know it's on Prime. Room six, by the way, is uh, the way that the post is dreadful, but it's sort of stylized like R six six M six. So why not just call it room six six six? Like if you're going to make that pun, just call it room six six six. Yeah. Also on Prime is a film called Beyond the Gates, uh, which is a low-budget retro-style horror from 2016, directed by someone called Jackson Stewart, who worked with Stuart Gordon in his later years, which explains why Barbara Crampton is involved in this. I've again. You seem to be typing in the word "gate" into Prime because I've covered this, but I'm intrigued to see what you think about it. Have we covered this? Yeah, I've covered it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's good. It's good that we're actually covering the same movies. I'm interested to. I, I can't remember what you thought of it. Anyway, um, apparently, um, yeah, uh, he's developing a, a a sequel with Brian Yuzna. Uh, to oh. this film, uh, of course, Brian Yesner made Society. Um, That's good. Anyway, yeah, it is good. Anyway, so I think the first thing that intrigued me about this movie, Beyond the Gates, was that the music is by uh, Wojciech Golchewski, who is a synth artist and a personal favourite of mine. So that was nice to see. So it's about these two brothers, Gordon and John, who return to their father's VHS store to clear it out because 
he's been missing and assumed dead. And uh, to enter the state's most generic first names competition as well, I think. I think so. Um, they find this VHS game called Beyond the Gates in their father's store and naturally they play it. It's presented by Barbara Crampton, who's a kind of a less slutty Elvira type character. And she seems to be directly talking to them. Will they play the game? Yes. <laughs> yes, they will. Um, Spoiler. <laughs> uh, I, so some stuff I like about this. I like how uh, the relationship between Gordon and his girlfriend is actually a vaguely adult relationship. And they're actually trying to sort some stuff out. And there's some tension between the brothers. Um, like Gordon is very straight and mature. John is very reckless and carefree. Their awkwardness. With each other is almost too realistic they're they're not exactly at each other's throats but they're constantly miscommunicating and sharing awkward silences i found it too slow as a movie it's like 40 minutes in before they even consider playing the game and it's only an 80 minute movie so once they do start playing they inadvertently cause chaos in the real world and that's quite intriguing um uh, but it never really picks up steam i wouldn't say the film um and the actual journey beyond the gates is lame uh, mm. i think the problem generally with the film is a lack of energy because it's like it's filmed like a slacker comedy but without the comedy and M- mumble mumble core yes, yes this is uh, kind of like the worst the, the worst aspects of of the um what's the guy in creep um and creep uh, two yeah what's his name um, Mark Mark Duplass. Yes, it, it's it's kind of like the worst aspects of that that sort of genre. Yeah, I I found the dialogue scenes quite static and scatter, and the performances weren't very expressive. They're kind of deadpan. Uh, I like that it's schlocky and over the top in a practical way, without being mocking or self-referential. So. You know, it's a film about the VHS era, but it isn't enthralled to VHS horror, if you see what I mean. So it's not just a constant bombardment of references. And it's because the central idea of having this game, having a direct influence in the real world is kind of, it's pretty solid. It's like a splatterhouse Jumanji or something, but it doesn't quite deliver on that premise, I wouldn't say. It seems too, too deadpan, too sober. I think it was a bit of a disappointment. Is that anywhere near what you thought of it? I can't remember. Yeah. One of the main things I remember from it was, you know, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, and I don't, I'm not trying to attract the girls, but I did used to work in a video shop in my late teens. And when I, they were in there and they were sorting out the father's videos, I thought this isn't a real video store because you, they've got copied VHSs on the shelves behind mm-hmm. them like just like blank tapes and stuff mm-hmm. um real no no in the business guys but i i i thought what i i liked about the film was almost like the first half because like you say the, the way the brothers interact and the relationships are all quite realistic um and and then the way that the, even when they're that scene where they 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 finally the film like cracks up a notch and they go to the office and find this TV playing the static with Barbara Crampton and they've realized this is what their father was doing when he disappeared from this earth. And yeah, you know, this is the, this is what is causing it. Even then they're like, Oh, should we put it on? Oh, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, I, oh, I don't know. What, what, and you think, you think, come on guys, there's a horror at some point. I'm going to have to give a shit. And, and uh, I think that the, and then when it goes back to the house and, and it's like, 
it's like the the mumblecore genre doesn't doesn't gel well with horror the horror genre and i agree yeah i, I felt like it ne- at some point it needed like something to ramp up like i would have loved if it did uh you know like a i used to say uh uh from dust till dawn but now i'm gonna say a ninth configuration where it's like all this like like wonderfully uh nuanced dramatic understated acting and then just completely went totally bonkers that would have yes. been amazing but it, it never does and like you say when, because it's all mumbling and then they go downstairs and then you know they're getting dragged through the gate and one of them saying oh no don't get dragged through the gate by demons oh i'm getting i'm I'm actually getting dragged through the gate by demons actually as you say mm-hmm. that like i don't i don't care so yeah it's a the fact that you said they're making a sequel with brian yesner got me excited and then i remembered the film and i was less excited <laughs> yes it do was... they really like talk their way through those scenes like that Oh, don't go through yeah. that door. Oh, I am going well, through that door, though. It's, oh. it's, I suppose it's more their responses to a lot of what's going on. Like, you know, the uh, the aftermath of weird events and stuff. And it will be very, like, uh, it will be very mum, mumblecore. Like, you can imagine it being quite a kind of deadpan comedy working quite well with them, like, you know, not reacting to it in an over-the-top way. But it's not really a comedy, so... It doesn't really make sense. It just seems so like they're acting it's just unrealistically. Flat. It's, yeah, really flatly, really yeah. Michael flatly. Yeah. Where, yeah, <laughs> you you need to they they needed to either go one way or the other, and actually, actually that whole thing about um, it, it feels like scenes needed to be reshot to say, okay, that's mm. in the middle. Is this funny or is this going to get dark? But yeah. it's it's straight down the middle and it just gets lost. And it means um, it's never dramatic. I also watched a film called Vice, not that one, from 2015, starring Thomas Jane and Bruce Willis. This is a film that I actually put on um, probably when it came out 2015-2016, and I turned it off because at about 10 minutes in, there's a there's a, a misdelivered line of dialogue, and I thought if you are not going to like say cut and get someone to speak the line as it was written then i am not going to give you my time and watch it of course now i run a podcast about shitty films i'll watch all of this all day long <laughs> so I, I came on and, and there, there was the line a girl waking up and in in the in bed sitting up instantly holding a pencil and paper and just just sketching out a dream to a girl uh her, her girlfriend and the girl the girl says oh stop saying that you'll make me gonna cry and I thought, right, I'm going to I'm going to there's two two sections of this of misdelivered dialogue. So the plot, the plot is it's effectively Westworld. Um, it's it's Thomas Jane is a is a cop with slightly unmanageable long hair that is seemingly like half stoned, wanders around. And uh, Bruce Willis runs this company called Vice, who is uh, in this unnamed American city. He has this huge complex where people can go and live out their sort of fantasies with these humanoid robots and they can do whatever they want. And it, it's not seen as a crime because they're not humans. So Thomas Jane hates it and says, basically, these people go in there, they live out these wild fantasies. And then when they come into the real world, they can't separate it. And um, it causes problems because then crime raises and they're doing these sort of heinous crimes. Um, the, the problem with the film is it's not very good, you see. So you've right. got you've got this is this is kind of mid Bruce Willis on really strong painkillers, not 
not not <laughs> caring what set he turns up on. Um, what is he I, on uh, now? What? He was on Strong Painkillers Men. <laughs> now he's just now it's on just sets pure, it's like horse tranks. Yes, it's farmyard sedatives now. He well, now he's just lost in the the fog of remembering what he got up to when he was on them, but whilst he's in front of a camera, um, being paid. Uh, the, 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 so the film is um, yeah, it's, it's Thomas Jane basically trying to take Bruce Willis down. Bruce Willis is in this film less than I am easily, and it's just him wandering around one room and then getting shot at the end. Um, the, there are moments that Thomas Jane, you can tell he's trying, he's trying to like make stuff happen, but it's so flat. And the whole thing about taking this girl out out of the uh, out of vice. And he wandered around saying, oh, but I am a real person. And Thomas Jane said, oh, I don't really care. I just want to shoot Bruce Willis in the arse and kill him because he's a knob. And then uh, everyone in the police precinct saying, oh, no, they, they, you know, Vice brings in a lot of tax or so whatever they get up to is fine. When it's clearly not fine because they're cloning humans. Uh, and then just it's it makes out basically that everyone who would go into this sort of fantasy world where they can live out their wildest dreams is either a rapist or a murderer. So everyone goes in there and it's just literally door, uh, like room after room of men just like naked punching women in the face until they're bloody pulps. And you think, I'm not entirely sure if that's everyone's fantasy. It's just like really just throwing themselves at women until they look like a milkshake. I, I think that the, I think there is a bit more, a bit more to the male psyche than that. So that was, that was a bit tedious, but it's it's just done really cheaply and like huge leaps of logic, but it gets bogged down in these endless scenes with people just explaining what they, uh, the film appears to think is like a really complex problem. And it's not, it's, these are effectively, they, they, these things, are, these, you know, these, these are cloned from human cells. They're effectively humans and you can reset their brains. So they're human and you're beating them to death over and over again and bringing them back to life. It's very mm. simple. And, and it presents as if it's this moral conundrum and it's just not. Um, the the other thing is, what was the other thing I was going to say about this? Yeah. At the end of the film is this hasn't happened in a film before that I'm aware of. I was watching the final shootout thinking getting like deja vu. And I thought, have I seen this before? And I realized that, the final shootout takes place in a sort of um, mezzanine slash gantry that Blade Trinity ends at, and oh. I just reckon I just recognised the steps. Um, yeah. I found it afterwards, so that was interesting. Uh, the film, not so much. It's it's sort of a late mid period Thomas Jane trying to find a vehicle that deserves him, and very much the absolute nucleus of. Bruce Willis not doing anything apart from frowning slightly and wearing a suit and getting paid. I feel bad mm. for Thomas Jane because he seems like he's like Carl Urban. He seems like one of those guys who actually like is is invested and tries. Yeah, in yeah, these yeah. Films and he just never really got the break that he deserves. I don't know. No. No, I, yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. You always know when you're watching a film with Thomas Jane that he will give 100%. <laughs> mm. The percentage on how much Bruce Willis will give you is different to 100%. Yeah, because what must happen is Thomas Jane must turn up and then film his first scene and be all like psyched and energized and be like, yeah, come on, guys, go and high five in the crew. Let's, let's fucking do this. And then he watches Bruce Willis's first scene 
and goes, yay. <laughs> and then people have to just wrestle the gun out of his hand. Yeah. It, like um, Hugh Jackman is another one of those people who seems like he always cares, except he's actually made it. It's like yes. Thomas Jane and, and yeah. It just makes Carl you wonder, like, it must so much of it luck. Like, in terms of getting the the right movie at the right time, I suppose. Yeah. You need, you need uh, what's his name? God, he was cast as Wolverine, and then he couldn't do it because he was stuck on Mission Impossible. DeGray Scott. Wow. That, that, he was cast as Wolverine, and then because Mission Impossible 2 overran, they had to, had uh, to replace him with, with the number Jackman. two choice, Hugh Jackman. Yeah. <laughs> That's astonishing. DeGray Scott must Scott. be pissed about that one uh, I, yeah well i'm not um what was that called that, that one? was called that was called vice not that one 2015 and it's on prime because it is so talk about cinema movie then oh here we go Ooh. someone's been paid candy man i saw this a while <laughs> back candy man uh, is uh, a film which is right. it's uh, it, kind of like the Suicide Squad it's another of these films which is these so called reboots which is having its cake and eating it because it claims to be a reboot but it's absolutely a sequel to the first film uh, to the point where it spends most of its time picking over and course correcting the first film Naturally, it doesn't mention the sequels Farewell to the Flesh and what was the other one called? Day of the Dead? Um, no idea. No idea. But yeah. anyway, yeah. So, like, I, I get I get it that, like, Helen Lyle, the uh, Virginia Madsen's character from the first film, she's herself become a myth. I get that. That's why they're going on about it so much. But, A, that was already clarified in the first film. That was the whole point. And B... It means that this sequel really struggles to find an identity of its own. Um, so it's, it's essentially the plot of the first film again, but written with far less clarity and it's way more meandering. Um, Candyman is more of a, he's an avenging angel here. So you don't get any of the original's moral ambiguity. Either. And it's set in the same place, essentially, but it's all been gentrified. That's the idea now. And it's, it's agonisingly socially relevant. Um, there's all this stuff about police brutality, which is very right on and a bit cringy. There's no subtext in this movie. It's just all text. Like Get Out did a really good job of portraying the subtle racism of this mostly white elite shrouded in the kind of veil of compliments. But there's no there's no kind of subtlety here. It's And so it, it's, it's less believable. It just feels like a more of a hammer blow than get out which felt more like a knife to the ribs sort of thing and uh and in the original candy man like helen lyle's obsession made sense because she was this coddled white liberal whose guilt plunged her into this underworld of this heavily black ghetto i guess here the motivating factor is that the main guy who's an artist it's his desperation to understand the injustice of this historic police murder, which is what the Candyman story is about. But he's also a very wealthy, privileged elite himself. 
um and because his wife basically finances him and so how much of it actually comes back from the misguided belief that it's racism that's holding him back and not just actually himself um it's very complicated and it might have made more sense for him to be this poor kid entering into a gentrified world which would have flipped the original i just think that would have been a more interesting approach but that's not the approach to take anyway so it gets just really bogged down in plotting and names and it does not deliver on scares at all really uh, this relocated obviously to this gentrified very modern sleek clean environment is an interesting idea but it naturally removes a lot of the atmosphere so it makes no sense in this when lights start flickering and stuff because this is just a nice place now and lights don't flicker in nice places you know it's uh it's got this really cliched nonsensical sound design so like You'll be in like a room where there's a fluorescent light and it'll just emit a piercing buzz for no particular reason other than I just imagine, oh, this is a horror film. So lights have to make stupid noises. It's that kind of stuff. It's like the scares aren't scary. They're really loud and just super stylized. For example, like there's one attack where um, the the attack by Candyman uh, on these girls who said Candyman five times in front of the mirror. The attack is sh- like half shown in an upturned makeup mirror on the floor. And it's like, OK, well, that's original. Yes, I've not seen that before. But, it also, but it's also really awkward to watch. And it's like there's this reluctance to admit this is a horror film at all. It feels like it's a social lecture first and then a reluctant horror film second, really. So um note that i haven't said much about the fact that the whole premise of candy man is to say his name five times in front of the mirror because it doesn't care about that part of it it's not interested in making like a a, a scary impactful like um urban myth horror movie it's just it feels like a social lecture it really does so when i did not s- like this when you said that um, you were surprised because you're watching the film and all the fresh and lights are, are sort of flashing on and off and there's no reason for it. Yes. You, just for our listeners, are you sure you weren't blinking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're only flashing every, like, 15, 20 seconds or something. Yeah, that's a good point. Didn't think of that. <laughs> They're only flashing every time I yawned. And there was a mosquito <laughs> really close to my ear, so that might explain the buzzing. <laughs> It's a pretty bad cinema, actually. Well, you watch it in the Floridian swamps, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, it's a shame because I remember watching the original uh, Candyman, and I, I think even if it's one of those things, just in the in the um, the public mind, where you know, with with Hellraiser, you get um, you know torn apart by chains, or with mm-hmm. you get the hockey mask from Friday the Thirteenth, or the glove from Freddy. The Candyman is like saying the name five times, and you know, you you have you have a bad afternoon. And I think that there's a a weird mythologizing of Clive Barker's work from the Books of Blood that isn't like uh, the the original Hellraiser to me is terribly dated. Um, And I was I was much more on board with the um, there was a recent like a midnight meat train and there was another one called I think it was called Fear or something. They Mm. basically started redoing low budget versions of his films and they were good. They were the the two I saw were good and then they just stopped. And now they've Mm. redone cameraman cameraman candyman. Mm. And I'm thinking 
there's this weird mythologizing of his stuff and it's like is it that you know the the, the like rawhead rex is dreadful and you think yes this this transference to the screen i wish that more care would be taken because there's so much to delve into with his is oeuvre uh, yeah. than than just like a lazy remake of a film that very much stood for a specific point in time. Yeah, that's what I mean about it having its cake and eating it because it, it you know it it wants to be a clean slate, but it relies so heavily on the first film as for all of its touchstones that it's like well you can't have both, can you? I mean, is it is it a new thing or not? It's just it's so it's so chained to that to that movie. And I think especially when you've got something like the the Halloween series, the way that has handled its continuation is so yeah. elegant. And then and then you've got this, and it's just like oh, it's just a it's just a film. Yeah. Okay, okay, thanks. It, I remember yeah. like the the saying Candyman in front of the mirror thing being like a big thing in school. I remember when yeah. pe- kids used to. They'd see Candyman and they would come in and dare other people to do it in front of a mirror. And I remember no one would ever go through with saying it five times. It was that a scary idea, exactly. Capturing of yeah, the imagination. It's a shame to hear that that's like not well. And that's the thing. Like that I, I can't remember who who it was who said it, but they said that the mark of a really scary movie is is one that makes you afraid of the real world. And that's kind of what the original Candyman did really well is by taking this very simple idea and make it so that like well you know it's ridiculous but would you actually stand in front of the mirror and say the name five times probably not because it's such a a scary simple idea the fact that you come away from this movie without having any of uh taking away any of that sense of real world fear says it all really about how much it fails on a very simple premise so, so it really tries good. to be too clever is it it tries to be it tries to be social commentary first before being a horror whereas great horror movies will be like oh, here's the horror and then you kind of peel back the layers to reveal the social commentary if you like which is why i mentioned get out because because that's it's a creepy film in its own right and you think it's one thing, but it's actually another. And that's what's cool about it. And uh, yeah, and and I suppose, well, we've talked about Romero as well. He was he was very good at hiding the kind of the commentary beneath the surface. It was it's subtext there. As I said, this is just text. And then uh, a pre-made movie monster thrown into the mix. Doesn't have to be Candyman. It's, dis- it's disappointing. That's really disappointing. Mm. Um, but then, yeah, like you say, where you've got the going back to the 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 eighties the horror, where you've got uh, Jason Voorhees, uh, um, and let's say they've got the thing, and as as Laszlo pointed out, where you've got uh, people are t- generally too afraid to say Candyman five times in front of a mirror um, in in school. So you've got a cross generational fear there. That is just wasted in in a lazy <laughs> remake. It's so it's just sad because I would have loved for you to say, oh this this really shit me up. Or <laughs> but yeah, to just say like oh it's just a, it's just nothing. It's yeah. yeah. Um, I'm very aware of the time. I know we've uh, uh, 
come over to come to our tour a lot. But so I mean, I can I can go through one more if if you both are up for it. But yeah, should we say one more that? and then we'll we can one more. I could kick a few into the longer hours for now. I, I'm I gotta I've gotta say Rupert that I uh, do you know what I'm gonna skip the one I was gonna talk about and I'm gonna skip straight to Hollywood homicide because I just want to oh get this off get this off my chest. Um, so so yeah, let me just oh I've got to I've got to get this out of the way because. I've talked about this for a while and it is bloody dreadful. So, <laughs> so this is a 2003 film starring Josh Hartnett and Harrison Ford. And for the listeners out there, please type in Hollywood Homicide into Wikipedia and look at the picture on the poster of Harrison Ford holding an invisible jacket that he's already wearing over his shoulder. Uh, look, I don't know what that poster is about. <laughs> Um, this feels like a nice fitting end to it because uh, we've talked about uh, Josh Hartnett this episode, and I think this. So, so the the plot, such as it is, is that uh, Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett are partners, one older, much one much younger, thrown detective, uh, thro- thrown together as partners, and they are trying to solve this uh, murder mystery of a well, this murder rather, it's not really a mystery of a young hip hop group that were just gunned down uh, during a show. And the problem is it's a, it thinks it's a comedy. And I've last time we talked about this, the last episode, I talked about Avenging Angelo, which was painful, but really painful, awful, forced uh, romantic drama. This is a flat out action comedy that neither has no action and is not funny. I, when I was watching this, I thought, God, this is this is a very bad film. And I have seen very few films that are bad with Harrison Ford in. I've seen bad films with Josh Hartnett in because I've seen Bunraku. But this is uh, this is like another level. And when I was looking at the trivia afterwards, someone described it as saying that all of the scenes involving Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett feel like um, uh, feel like sort of rehearsals. And it, it's it that is absolutely right because. It's supposed to be a buddy comedy, but what happens is you watch the scene and it'll be a scene where, say, at the start of the film, there's a bit where they turn up to a crime scene where all, the, all this hip hop group have been murdered and Harrison Ford will turn to Josh Hart and say, right, get me a burger. I don't want any rabbit food. I want, uh, you know, a burger. I want ketchup. I want mayonnaise and I, I want mustard um, and I want cheese. And then Josh Hart will go over to the, the cop on site and, and repeat that order. And then the burger will turn up and then Harrison Ford will say, God damn it, there's rabbit food in here. Who put who put lettuce in this burger? And Josh Hart will sort of, oh, God, did I say lettuce? And you think this isn't funny. This isn't mm. this is. And and every scene with them is like that. It's like um, it, it feel they feel like scenes they should say, right. OK, we've 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 had the dailies. We watched that back. It's crap. So we need to reshoot it. But it's like it's like that final step wasn't quite taken in every single sequence in the film. Uh, so it, it's you've got Harrison Ford moonlighting as a real estate agent and Josh Hart moonlighting as a yoga instructor with a, a class full of hot women. Does he do it because he likes yoga or does he just fancy them? That's Hilarity the joke. in shoes. Uh, this is 2003, by the way, not 1982. And then uh, at, at the end of the film, the, I realized I thought halfway through the film, I paused it probably just to rub the bridge of my nose. And I thought, Christ, I feel like I've been watching this since I was 12 and there's still like an hour left. And I realized that the, the ending sequence is like almost 40 minutes of, of a chase. 
but it's so undynamic uh, that it 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 was undynamic. But I was just glad for something to happen apart from bad jokes. So mm-hmm. I thought, oh, at least at least like there's a car going fast. But you know, you watch a car chase and it's like the camera's somewhere and the car zooms towards it, and then it cuts to what's inside the car and they deliver they del- they exchange some bad dialogue. And then there'll be another camera a bit further away, and it's like repeat ad nauseum. And I thought, it didn't anyone watch this back and think this isn't this isn't funny? It's not energetic. Mm. It's got no no sense of movement. And the, the film is, I said this before with Avengers Angelo, but when when it comes to like comedies, this is probably one of the worst I've seen. This is there's nothing here there's no there's no and apparently they really didn't get on as well um hartnett and ford there's no there's no um there actually between. no chemistry between the one thing i will say is that harrison ford is in a sexual relationship with a woman his own age that's probably the highlight of the film <laughs> well that's, that's a nice change <laughs> yeah. um not only it, this is ron shelton directed this wasn't it so yeah. Not only was obviously he's directed some great movies like Bull Durham and White Men Can't Jump, and also Dark Blue. Not only was it by the same director as Dark Blue, it was the follow-up to Dark Blue. He made this straight after Dark Blue, so there's no there's no excuses really. Dark Blue was one of our down. borderline. Yeah, it was one of our films of the week, I think, last yeah. episode, it, or a couple of episodes ago. Dark Blue is a fantastic film. There's a lot to say. Yeah. I don't, I, I, there's so much wrong with this film. I don't know. It's obviously the script is bad. I don't know if, if they thought of the, you know, Josh Hartnett would have been, the faculty was 98. This is 2003. So he's kind of an up, like you say, with Black Hawk Down, it's an up and coming star. Uh, you know, Harrison Ford is a, not so much for comedies, but he, you know, he's he's obviously a big name. It, it felt like nothing worked mm. at all throughout the whole film, and it, and because it's well, I'm I'm just on the Wikipedia page now. How long is it? It felt long. It is, uh, yeah, two hours long. Wow. And and you feel every second of it. <laughs> it. I was just thinking, this sounds like the sort of film bit like um. We talked about John Badham before and like at yeah. the end of his film where it comes up saying a John Badham film. And you're like, are you that proud of that film? <laughs> OK, but 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 this sounds like a John Badham film, which makes you go, actually, John Badham is pretty good at that sort of thing. Yeah. Like all of his films, they, they at least they have pace yeah. and, and a lightness of touch kind of thing. And they get to the end and you're not like screaming with boredom. So maybe, yeah, yeah maybe he had something after all. But, uh, absolutely in this here I'm, I'm just looking at John Badham now to see he's from Luton, so that's good. <laughs> he's in Brit, is he? Yeah. Uh yeah, and it drops on Nick oh, Nick of Time. Of course he directed Nick of Time, why wouldn't he? Yeah. Uh yeah, short, short circuit. Bird on a wire. Bird on a wire, that was a bizarre film. The Hard Way, which is a film that I way, believe laszlo really wants us to cover on this podcast you have to watch it is not available anywhere in the world <laughs> no. you can buy it on prime i think on amazon I, 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 I will yeah. i will i will watch it um so i i suppose we i mean i've only done three films uh and they, they would they were the worst of the worst so do you know what? i'm 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 gonna choose my film of the week is going to be scrooged i'm not room six and vice and hollywood homicide they don't get a look in honestly 
And I haven't even got the wrong turn, not that one yet. So that's for next time. Some of these films are older than me now that I've had on the back there because I don't want to talk about them. Um, so, yeah, I think my, in the Donna Party, I think my film of the week would be, uh, I would say Scrooged, because as much as I love Lethal Weapon, I feel like Scrooged is is the one that really keeps on giving. Mm. Oh, so we got to choose a film of the week from the from the Donna canon. Well, you can choose. I you've done better quality films than me. You can choose two. Choose a Donna well, one. Non non Donna, I'd say Land of the Dead. That was a real surprise. Yeah, I'm I'm 100 watching that this week. Yeah, uh, with with Donna, I couldn't I couldn't choose between my kids there, so. It's, uh, but it's not Lady Hawk. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> um, Weirdly, it sticks in the memory, Lady Hawk, but it's not a good film, really. Not really. It's not great. No. Uh, Laszlo, I think The Omen. I had not seen it before, and it was yeah. very enjoyable and clearly influential on many other things that followed it. So yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's yeah, the, the Omen. Um, Land of the Dead and Scrooge. Um, uh, thank you for joining us, Laszlo Buckets. Uh, it should definitely happen again. It's been a really funny episode. Um, thank you for but, having me. But I am going to say because it's been a a, a draw, so it's it's still two one with the audience with Arkansas. I I am I am going to say that the the new Arkansas for next next time yeah. is Michelle Pfeiffer to Tony Todd. Oh Christ! Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. What is Tony Todd in? I can't even think. The Candyman. He may have been. In oh, of course, yes, yeah. the Candyman. Ah. Okay. <laughs> That's all you need. Off you go. Uh, okay, because there are so it, many yeah. big names in Candyman. <laughs> so many names in that, that late eighties. Um, <laughs> low budget horror. I think this will be easier than the last one. The, the thing is, the problem with the Farmiger Hartnett one was that it was disarmingly difficult because you feel like it should be easy and yet yeah. every route you take it's like it's like you think in your brain you know when you start going down one of these paths and you think in your brain you get to a certain point and then you're like how did i get here why am i thinking about like harrison ford all of a sudden where did i get to this point yeah you end up like going okay yes yes i've got it and you go all you've done is link the same person back to themselves <laughs> <laughs> it was I, I gotta say with with the Vera Farmiga one, the the two winners were obviously both mentioned the departed and as Rupert has said, get to the ensemble. Get to that That's ensemble cast. Because yeah. um, it's fun. Tony Todd, he's got so many choose from so. <laughs> um <laughs> it has been absolutely fantastic. It's been wonderful talking about Richard Donner. Um thank you to Michael York and yeah, I guess uh, any last words, guys? If not, we'll um, jump on the bus next time. No, nope, I think we're good. I think we just say, here's to you, Don, if anyone ever called you that. Yeah, And I'm sorry we didn't come up with a good Donna Kebab-related joke title. No. I was see- seeking one in my mind. Okay. As I was uh, obviously thinking about the Donna party earlier on, the Donner Party, did they just get lost and freeze to death or did they eat each other? They they ate each other. Good night, everyone. <laughs> 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 <laughs>